reminded as we look to your word that you are a sovereign God, that there is none like you, that in Genesis we learn that before the worlds began, amid your fellowship, you ordered all things. And Genesis tells us that ex nihilio, that you spoke and out of nothing the world began. We know that at the appearing of our Savior one day, that kings will shut their mouths, that no one will dare speak at the majesty of your presence. And so we worship you today. We know that we only see now dimly, but one day we will see you face to face. Our desire is that we would worship you as sincerely and authentically here as we know we will one day before your throne. We ask, Father, that you would speak to us. You have chosen, the Scripture says, the, the foolishness of preaching. And so I recognize, Father, that as I open your word, I do so humbly dependent upon your grace and your spirit. I pray that you would hide me behind the shadow of the cross and that it would be the words of the Spirit of God that move in our hearts, for only he can change our lives. And we pray this for your glory and for our great joy. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know if you've ever heard uh, someone say, I'm certain that you probably have, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. You ever heard that? Hypocrites there. I was in the grocery store yesterday and I'm fairly certain I saw some hypocrites there, but I'm hungry. So I go to the grocery store. I have a soul, so I go to church because I hope to know the God who made me, who made me for a relationship with him and who wants to do something in and through me. It's true, we are hypocrites, all humans are, and the person who points out that hypocrites are over there has failed to look into the mirror, as James says in chapter 1, and behold, that in the mirror he sees, he or she sees a hypocrite, someone who says things about themselves or things that they believe, and yet there's a disparity between what they say and, and what they do, and we're all in the same club, you and I. As fallen men and women, we are hypocrites. And yet there's something uh, very important, something riding on whether or not you and I uh, press into Jesus Christ, being the hypocrites that we are, and allow him to do on the interior of our lives that which will come out uh, externally so that other, my, other people might recognize that uh, we're not pretending to be something that we aren't, uh, we're saying that we are sinners, sinners who've been saved by grace, but we're in the process of being made new. Uh, if you're in middle school or high school, that was your cue. I'm sorry, I forgot. You're dismissed. And this is what James is concerned about, is that the, the pressure that the early church is under, and James is, is the brother of Jesus Christ, and he's writing the first letter to the fledgling church. It's the first letter uh, in the New Testament, the first writing. And his concern is that uh, Christians, because of the pressure uh, in the circumstances in which they find themselves, uh, economic pressure and, and also persecution, that they're considering cutting corners. 
that maybe there's a, another way to do this such that we can serve the Lord in secret uh, and then externally we can do things that will advantage us, that will better our standing in a community. And this is what leads people to say, hypocrites. James knows this full well and so he's calling the early church uh, not to uh, shirk their responsibility to follow after Christ to be honest about who we are, that, that I am, uh, uh, that God has saved a wretch like me, that I am a sinner, that I still dwell in a house of flesh, and I am subject to great temptation all the time, and I find my heart prone to wonder. And yet it is in that confession that I'm reminded of the call to repentance, that I must live close to the cross, that I must continually turn from the way that is natural to me. And in doing that, I'm pursuing Jesus Christ. And He, he not me, He is making something of me that I cannot be apart from Him. That breathes authenticity into the Gospel. We're not pretending to be something that we aren't. We're here because we know who we are. We're sinners in need of a Savior. And we seek to allow Him the freedom to work in us so that He will overcome that which holds us back or that which, which limits us from being the people He created us to be. And in so doing, our stories, we have this treasure, Paul says, in earthen vessels. As Jesus shines through the cracks of our life, then He becomes the hero. We have to concern ourselves less with impressing other people. And so James is writing to talk to them about God's mission, which has not changed uh, since the beginning. God's mission is that His people would make the world know Him. Now, in the Old Testament, the mission was to draw people to Israel. They were to be a light among the nations. Sin, uh, centripetal. They were to draw the nations to, to see that there is a God who is, a God who loves them, a God to whom they will be held accountable, a God that they must know and be forgiven by. Uh, and yet Israel fails. And Jesus comes into the world and accomplishes our salvation through His death, burial, and resurrection. And then the mission becomes centrifugal. That Jesus commands the church to go therefore, to go out into the world. And though the mission has changed, or at least the direction of the mission from the Old Testament to the New, uh, the contrast is clear. And yet God's goal is still the same. That you and I, having come to know God, having been forgiven of our sins, having the power of the Holy Spirit uh, placed within us to help us do life the way God intended it, would show other people by our speech and by our action there is a God who loves them and that they can know. James chapter 1, verse 18. James writes, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which alone is able to save you, to save your souls. Verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. When those outside the family of God make accusation against the church that we are hypocrites, that there's a disparity between what we say we believe and how we behave, we must take it to heart. There's truth in what the world observes. And yet, as James would have us see, 
this is not what God would intend. God would intend that we would recognize that He has redeemed us as a sort of first fruits among His creation. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that He's created us, uh, He has created good works for us to walk in now that He's saved us. And that, that, would, that means it begins by receiving humbly the implanted word. This is not primarily preaching, although preaching is part of how we hear the truth. Uh, what is required for you and I to overcome the natural hypocrisy that rests inside of us is that we would make a continual habit of feeding on God's word for ourselves. I can't do that for you, and you can't do it for me. But as we humbly present ourselves before how great thou art, and we receive humbly the implanted word which is able to save our souls, then he and he alone can do something in us and through us that we cannot do on our own. And this leads then to having received the word, James says, don't just be a hearer, be a doer. And he turns to that in chapter 2 where he takes this, uh, this assumption and then wants to work it out from the interior to the exterior. Ephesians, I'm sorry, uh, James chapter 2, verse 14, he asks two rhetorical questions. What good is it, my brothers? Again, that's the Greek word adelphoi, which is the neuter gender, which means brothers and sisters. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James isn't asking because he doesn't know the answer. These are rhetorical questions. The answer to them is an emphatic no. The person who says they have something but does not live it does not have something. Or the something that they have isn't genuine. That faith cannot save them. James is concerned here with the quality of faith, and he spends the rest of chapter 2 uh, fleshing out uh, this particular premise. Now, there's a historic concern among theologians because uh, they suppose that James uh, and the Apostle Paul uh, are at odds with one another on this. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So this morning, we're, uh, as we deal with James' passage, we're also going to, to uh, deal with this seeming conflict between the Apostle Paul and James, and we will find that there are actually two sides of the same coin. I want to summarize uh, the passage that we're dealing with today with, with two ideas. The first is this, that profession that does not lead to practice is merely religious pretense. Profession that does not lead to practice is merely religious pretense. And the practice that we're talking about is not just coming to church. The practice that we're talking about is the practice that says, my profession is that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I wish to follow Him. Jesus says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So the practice that we're looking for is actually following Jesus. Walking in the footsteps of your rabbi. And what James is saying is that there's a kind of profession that sounds real, but if it doesn't issue forth in a transformed kind of living, it's fake. Now he gives us a, a diagnostic 
I would say a diagnostic for disciples, four contrasting proofs to this point. Number one, he's going to suggest that real faith isn't callous or off-putting, but compassionate and concerned. Verse 15 and 16, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James is saying for you and I to, to see someone in need, and keep in mind that 90% of those living in the world at the time James is writing, they were impoverished. He's speaking to poor people about helping poor people. He would not hold back if he were speaking to us today. We are not poor people. And so the first diagnostic is he says, if you really are a Christ follower, then it moves you to be compassionate and concerned about other people, not callous and off-putting. We have an offering to help people who are victims of Hurricane Dorian. We're seeking to uh, send uh, Christmas shoe boxes to kids, uh, impoverished kids in other parts of the world. Uh, we want to honor the sacrifice of men and women who serve as first responders. Why? Because our faith in Christ motivates us to be compassionate and concerned about other people around us. And if we are not, then James would say, it sounds real, but it's fake. Our faith does not leave us indifferent. It draws us to be involved. Yeah, it's a messy world. Let's build walls around it. Let's shut the world out. This is not who we've been called to be. We are called like Jesus to enter the fray. It's one of the most beautiful things about God. In the beginning, in creation, the creation is not ordered. The word, the Hebrew word is chaos. God enters chaos and He creates beauty. This is no less than what Jesus Christ does when He comes to the earth. He enters chaos and He creates beauty. James says if our faith is real, if it's substantive, then it will lead us to be compassionately involved in the needs of others. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is the epitome of who God is. He does not need you. He does not need me. He doesn't need my time. He doesn't need my talent. He doesn't need my treasure. He loves me. And he shows me compassion. Second, James suggests that real faith isn't alone uh, and apart, but rather the start of something spiritually alive. Verse 17, so also faith by itself does not, uh, if it does not have works, is dead. Now the meaning of the word dead here means useless, ineffective, impotent. I don't consider myself to be a, a, an incredibly religious person. I think, I'm, I think of myself as spiritual. If your religion, if God isn't showing up in your religion, then you might as well stay home and get an extra hour of sleep. Because religion saves no one. But if God is showing up, James says, then, then your faith is substantive and God has made you spiritually alive. The word alive means effective, vibrant, life-giving, useful. Jesus said in John chapter 12, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains 
alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Inasmuch as our faith in Christ is substantive, then God has taken what was once dead inside of us and made it spiritually alive. And this cannot help but work its way out to the exterior of our lives. God is not about conforming you on the exterior. We welcome anyone in here. I grew up in a church where you had to dress the part. I remember a man being asked to leave the church because he had a baseball cap on. Let me tell you, if you want to hear about Jesus today and you have a baseball cap on, you're welcome to come on in. I want to talk to you about Christ. Because if God doesn't like your baseball cap, He'll change it later on. You're not dishonoring Him. He loves you for who you are, not because of what you have on or because of what you do. He wants to make you spiritually alive, brother and sister. That means that it doesn't matter. One of the reasons why I prefer dressing casually is because I'm not trying to put on airs or pretense. I am a sinner saved by grace and I'm reminded daily just how desperately I need Jesus Christ. And I know that as much as He's working in my heart, He's committed to changing me on the exterior. He has made me spiritually alive and He wants me to live in that way. Third, James is saying real faith isn't unseen and unsubstantiated, but visible and valuable. Verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, this is not about an invitation to uh, people-pleasing performance. I'm not doing what I do to try to impress you. I'm not, I'm not striving to live the way I live in my marriage, in my, in my parenting, in, in my daily life, just so I can build the church. I, I do what I do out of a personal commitment to Jesus Christ because I know better than anyone else how much He has overcome in my life to save me. I know how much sin He has forgotten. I know how often I have heard, I forgive you when I've repented and confessed my sin again. You see, part of what James is concerned about is that if you and I, if it's not genuine on the inside, if it's, then, it, then it will remain unseen and unsubstantiated. And he wants us to understand that, that the outward expression of our faith becomes an affirmation of the genuineness of it inside. If you can't see it, do you really know it exists? John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By this will all men know that you're my disciples. By your profession? No. By your love for one another. The reason why the church, the reason why the church is vital, the reason why the church must know upon which it stands and hold its ground is because it is the only redemptive organization in the world that is leading people to Christ and expressing more fully who God is. It's in this setting as the body of Christ that we learn to love the unlovely. Some of you aren't easy to love. You know that? But we love each other because Christ's love compels us on the inside, and then it gets expressed on the outside. 
We follow Christ not because it's all going our way, not because everything is as we would like it to be. We follow Christ because He's changed our lives. And we've discovered in Him changing our lives that He wants to work through our lives. And so how we live matters immensely. Our commitment to Christ must be visible and it is valuable. Number four, James says, real faith isn't mere intellectual assent, but an attitude and an action from a transformed heart. Verse 19, you believe in God. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. You believe in God? I hear people say so many, so, so often, God's always been a part of my life. I've always believed in God. Congratulations. Even the devil believes in God. But he's not saved. And he's not going to be. And he'll spend an eternity separated from the Creator who made him. You can believe in the idea of God. You can go to church. You can look the part. But if your heart is not transformed by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, then friends, you don't have anything of substance. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that apart from works, that faith apart from works is useless? Remember we talked about several weeks ago the, the great Shema, kind of like the, the, uh, uh, the, the motto of the Israelites, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You see, what starts on the inside is intended to work its way out. And so three times a day they would remind themselves, I have to walk my talk. I have to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, but it does not stop there. I have to love the Lord my God. I have to live for Him with all my life. He says, do you want to be shown? Are you willing to know? That's the question. Are you willing to know? Do you just want a cup of Jesus? Or do you want all of Him? If you think you can have a little, then you don't understand. Jesus Christ is both Savior and Lord. You know what Lord means? It means when you come to Him as Savior, you sign the deed to your life over to Him. He gets to use you as He pleases. And here's the good news. You say, well, I don't want to go to a mission field. I don't want to die a horrible death. There is no safer place for you to be than in the hands of the God who made you. He alone knows why you have the passion and the ability and the talents and the looks and the drive that you have. He alone can use you as He intended you to be. That phrase, foolish person, it means hollow man. Hollow man. Inside each and every one of us, there's a God-shaped vacuum. You're born with it. You've tried to fill it with so many different things. Most of us jump on the acquisition treadmill in adulthood and, and we run and we acquire and we acquire and it's all in a vain attempt to try to fill up a hole inside. Some of us get married for that reason and we use our spouses for years, decades even, trying to fill up something that only God can fill. That's what James says. You're, you're hollow on the inside. And this is why 
your talk is not matched by your walk. He gives us two demonstrations of devotion. First is Abraham. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that Abraham is a, see that a, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Here's the question about Abraham. Was he justified by sacrificing Isaac? No. Isaac didn't die. He didn't actually sacrifice Isaac. Scripture says he, he acted in faith, trusting God. He was justified by his faith. But he demonstrated the substance of his faith by being willing to do what God told him to do. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able, even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham believed God, he believed God, and then he behaved. He acted in faith. He wasn't just a hearer about who God was, he was a doer. And it was counted to him as righteousness. John chapter 15, verse 14, Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. You know, the difference for so many people between be doers of the word and not hearers only. Some of us uh, aren't convinced about God's word. And so rather than dig into it and prove it out and, 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 and develop the sense of confidence to trust it, we rather just stay suspect of it. We, we want to we be a hearer, but we're not certain about doing some of it. And, and in so doing... It says something about what we really believe about Jesus. You're really just the God of your own life. That's the truth. If God is who He says He is, if Jesus Christ has transformed your heart, then you believe that this is His Word. And you can trust His goodness. And you will do it. You remember that bumper sticker? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. That's awesome, except for it's theologically incorrect. The truth is, God said it, and that settles it. It really doesn't matter what you and I believe. But in believing, we are invited to experience the power that can transform the human heart and, like Abraham, solidify us in a direction of righteousness that will leave us living for Him. Verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Rahab believed that God was working among these people. She received the news of what God was doing. She believed and she got involved. This is what faith lived out looks like. If Jesus is who you say He is, then it necessarily leads to fruitfulness 
Hebrews chapter 11 verse 31 says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. You see, true inward faith is demonstrated necessarily by outward action. Hebrews chapter 11, if I had time I would read it, but it's the hall of faith. I encourage you to take a look at it, verses 33 through 38. And in that we hear about all that God did as he moved people to trust him by faith uh, and that led them to action broken down into two categories. The top category is where everybody wants to be. It's where the mouths of lions are stopped and the, 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 the power of fire is quenched and they escape the sword and they put foreign armies to flight. We love that idea. But the second half of the Hall of Faith says that others suffered uh, mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sewn in two. They were killed with the sword. All believing who God was, and then living for Him. All hearers of the Word, yes, but more than that, doers of the Word. Doers content to let God choose how to invest their single solitary life. This is what you and I are called to. And there are a myriad of ways for our faith to be shown. First, let me answer this question, how do we reconcile Paul and James? So, Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says, For we maintain a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. James chapter 2, verse 24 says, You see that a man is justified by works and not faith alone. Let's start with their understanding of the word justify. As Paul writes about justification, he's talking about how we are declared righteous. There is nothing that you can do that will earn your way to being justified before God. So as Paul talks about the word justify, he's talking about a, a, a forensic legal term. He's talking about how does God declare you just. It does not happen by works of the law. It happens because of faith in Christ. James, on the other hand, is talking about how we demonstrate righteousness. So we're justified uh, in Paul's mind uh, in Christ. And then James is saying, but that justification, uh, how we become, is actually exhibited, how we behave uh, is expressed outwardly. And we're justified in that way by what we say and how we live. So J Paul is talking about how a believer becomes and James is talking about how a believer lives as a Christian. James is talking about the root of our salvation. Uh, Paul is. And James is talking about the fruit. Paul is stressing the inward disposition of our hearts that we've given our lives over, lock, stock, and barrel to Jesus Christ. And James is stressing how that outwardly uh, displays itself in action. Paul is talking about uh, demonstrating how uh, God's part of salvation with human participation. So Paul is looking from God's perspective. When J Paul says that we are justified before God, he has envisioned the courtroom where God is sitting upon uh, his uh, judgment bench. And we are on trial and Jesus is our defending attorney. It's from God's perspective that we're declared just because of Christ. But James has a, a man's perspective. How we see each other in light of, uh, of what we say about what we believe and how it's lived out. So Paul is talking about the imputation of righteousness. That is the gifting, the endowment of righteousness. James is talking about the manifestation of that righteousness. So Paul and James are not contradicting one another. They're actually just two sides of the same coin. 
And that leads me to my final thought. Saving faith rests in the gospel alone. James believes that. The Apostle Paul believes that. It is the teaching of Scripture. Saving faith rests in the gospel alone, but it necessarily results in the production of gospel works. James reiterates himself in chapter 2, verse 26, when he says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Saving faith is alive. Professing faith, if it does not produce, is dead. It doesn't matter what you say. If you have living faith, then it necessarily leads to an expression of a life of devotion. This is the record of the New Testament. John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, verse says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the way, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 continues the same thinking, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, not of your own doing, it is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever we sow, that will we also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap according to the flesh, corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary going to church. No. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us believe as we have heard the word, but let us press beyond belief to behavior and be doers of the word. Why is this so essential? Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. As Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. James is not inviting us to a sort of people-pleasing performance. Rather, he's inviting us to a passionate pursuit to flesh out what God has started inside of us. 
It's not about judging one another. It's about discernment. Discernment. By, your, by their fruits, you will know them. If it's real on the inside, then it necessarily expresses itself outward. Well, what is the fruit? Well, it's, there's inward fruit. The Scriptures talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Do those things characterize you inwardly? You know, I can't answer that for you. You can't answer it for me. You have to be honest with yourself. Are you characterized by love, by joy, by peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, self-control? And as much as you see those things inwardly in you, you're bearing fruit as a Christ follower. It's also about outward, outwardly expressing our faith. Being sensitive when someone shares with you a need in their life to say, let's pray right now. I can't, I don't know, I don't have the words. I don't know what to tell you, but I know someone who can. And he will give you a peace that passes all understanding. Are you finding a place to do life with other people? That's why we're doing so much to launch life groups, because we need each other. Those are outward ways in which our, our faith is exhibited. It leads all the way up to being sensitive to share the good news about Jesus Christ with someone else. There's a myriad of things in Scripture that talk about how we bear fruit outwardly, also upwardly, that we're worshiping God. That when we come here, we come here willing to set aside our agenda. I know that not everything we do in a weekend service is your cup of tea. I get that. I've been at it three decades. I know that you can't please everybody, so I just try to focus on pleasing Him. And all I ask of you is that you come holding your preferences loosely. Because we're gathered here to express outwardly, upwardly, what we believe in our hearts. That He is King of kings and Lord of lords. That He's worthy, infinitely worthy of our greatest praise. If that happens in our church setting, it happens because we all got our eyes off of us and onto Him. Bearing fruit is just about communicating the story that I'm just a sinner, that Jesus is the hero of my life. Ah, if you only knew me back then, He's made so much of my life. He's brought me so far, even though I still have so far to go. He's proven Himself just like He did to so many who've gone before me to be faithful. And as I display the truth about who I am, like I don't have to dress myself up to be something I'm not, I don't have to be about my ego. I don't have to be about my agenda. It's okay for you to know I'm a wretch. And he saved a wretch like me. I'm a sinner, but I'm in the process of becoming a saint. That's how we bear fruit. So bearing fruit is sometimes just being sensitive enough to say, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm finally going to call it a sin because God calls it a sin. And I'm going to repent of it. And by his grace, I'll get whatever help I can. I'm going to change. I'm going to let him change me. And then on this side of it, it's about letting him use my life for his redemptive purposes. It's about glorifying God. That's why you were created. You weren't created to put more money in your bank account. You weren't created for what those killer retirement plans you have. That's not why you were created. That is so shallow and it doesn't last. You were meant, my friend, 
to glorify the creator of all things. That's your glorious purpose. Second is to live to your created intent. You're to reflect who he is. You're not a hollow man. You're not a hollow man. God has taken up residence inside of you and he wants to radiate through the cracks of your life. He wants to show the world who he is. You are the Imago Dei. Some of you are living far beneath the level of your inheritance. You are created in the image of God. Finally, we're blessed to be a blessing. Yeah, the world thinks we're hypocrites, but we know who we are. We're blessed and highly favored. Only it's not because of who we are or just simply meant to lavish on us. It's so that we might go out and be a blessing the way we have been blessed. 2 Corinthians 13, chapter 5. Chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. A drastic disparity here. And Paul, in agreement with James, would say, you need to look at yourself. Evaluate what you say you believe. If it's only surface level, if it's only skin deep, and it hasn't transformed you, if you don't feel the call to turn away from your sin, then you need to really consider whether or not you've given your life to Him. Because friends, if you have, if you've given your life to Christ, if you're not just the casual Christian that He talks about in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, where we just give in to our desires and we follow it all the way to death. If we're more than casual Christians, then we would recognize that in repenting and believing in Christ, He has desired to change us forevermore. Now, He's just going to redeem the person He made you to be. If you're an introvert, He's not looking to make you Billy Graham. But He's not content to leave you where you are. Every one of us is on a journey toward Christ-likeness. And we must cooperate if we would exhibit by our walk what we say we believe our talk. The question is, who am I trusting? Who are you trusting? Is it Jesus or is it you? I implore you to be honest with yourself. Who is it you're trusting? You think you have it figured out? I have a dear loved one who I've talked to for a long time about shallow profession, profession that does not lead to practice. They insist that they know, but it doesn't show up in how they live. And when I challenge them, pray for them. When I challenge them, what I've heard in response is, God and I have an arrangement. Friends, there are no arrangements. This is the arrangement. You either align your life with it and come under its authority and learn to let God work out through the power of the Holy Spirit what He wants to do in you so that He might work through you and beyond you. Or you've deceived yourself into thinking 
you got a good tongue, I'll just talk my way around it. Scripture says kings will shut their mouths when they stand before him. You and I are not exempt from the humble estate of our great and mighty God. What are you working for? You're either working to express the goodness of what God has done in you, or you're working to try to achieve something for yourself. James wants us to be clear. Faith is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it necessarily leads to gospel work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for uh, the power of your word to not only save our souls, but to transform us, to make us light and salt to the world around us. May those who look upon us, may those who we do life with in our community as individuals and as a church, may they know that you, Lord Jesus, are the hero of our story, that you are the shepherd of this church that you are the one who has changed us, made us new, brought us to life, and redeemed the potential of our existence so that watching a sunset is not just a secular endeavor, it's spiritual, it's worship. So that being kind to someone is also often the opportunity for ministry. May the world see us as your fathers. May they know that we are your disciples, by our love for one another. May we not grow weary in well-doing, recognizing that you have called us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and so to love our neighbor as ourselves. In Christ's name, amen. Would you uh, mind standing with me? We close with benediction this morning. I want to remind you about the New City Catechism, which is printed every week. It's a 52-week journey. Moms and dads, it's especially a good tool for teaching theology to your kids in bite-sized ways. Today's question, question number four, is what is the Lord's Prayer? And so I wanted to finish